Hey everyone! Welcome to episode 233 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Jess Findlay, a wildlife and landscape photographer from Vancouver, British Columbia. Jess spent his childhood hiking and birdwatching with his family throughout the Pacific Northwest, through which his passion for photography was born. In 2011, Jess was awarded the International Youth Photographer of the Year Award from Nature's Best Photography, prompting him to take this serious hobby to the next level. Since then, Jess has gone on to be awarded in the prestigious BBC Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition and many others. Photography has brought him deep into the backcountry of the Pacific Northwest and beyond, where he also engages in mind-boggling mountaineering adventures, which we discuss at length this week. We cover a wide variety of topics, and I know you're going to love it. Okay, let's get to the show. It's awesome to have hey. you on the podcast, man. Yeah, awesome to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I was um, really happy my friend Michael Bellino recommended you uh, to the podcast. He's a good friend of mine from Portland, Oregon, and and uh, he sent me a couple of your Instagram stories, and I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. So oh, right I, had to, I had to reach out. Cool. I'm glad you did. Happy to be chatting. Yeah. So I, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I um, feel really bad because I had never heard of you before he had recommended you. And um, as soon as I dove into your work, I was like, wow, how do I not know about <laughs> this guy? So I'm really happy to to sit down and, and get this podcast going. Cool. Yeah. I feel like the, the worlds of landscape and wildlife photography tend to be pretty kind of split apart. I guess there's not that many people that try to mix the two or kind of do both fairly seriously. And um, I'm certainly much more a wildlife photographer than I am a landscape photographer. I don't feel that kind of like steeped in the whole landscape photography scene. I kind of am a observer from the outside most of the time, um, but I certainly enjoy it. So it's uh, I'm glad I got on your radar one way or the other. So yeah, cool. Well, you know, for people that uh, haven't heard of you before, like poor people like me, uh, <laughs> would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe talk a little bit about how it is you found yourself um, operating a camera. Sure. Uh, so yeah, my name is Jess Finley. I'm a 28-year-old professional photographer. I live just outside Vancouver, just in sort of the closest suburb, Burnaby, British Columbia. And uh, I've lived right in this general area for my whole life. I grew up um, around here and my first sort of in introduction, I guess you could say, into wildlife and nature was through bird watching with my family in, in and around Vancouver. And um, yeah, that just occupied the majority of sort of my free time with my parents. That was kind of our the activity we all bonded over and, and did in our free time. So um, that really introduced me in a very immersive way to the, the natural world around Vancouver. And for anyone that's not familiar with sort of the geography of, of where I am here, um, a really large river comes and dumps into the Pacific Ocean right south of Vancouver, and it creates an amazing um, bird and just general biodiversity sort of hotspot. And that in combination with um, the mountains right at our doorstep and, you know, pretty much infinite wilderness um, to the north of us, it creates a pretty, a pretty good place to be a kid that's interested in nature and, and outdoor adventure and things like that. So um, from there, it just kind of continued to spur me along and got into mountain biking and all sorts of other activities in the outdoors. Um, when I got to the age where I was kind of 
too cool to be a bird watcher. And then eventually sort of that pulled me back in and, um, you know, figured it was actually a pretty cool pastime and there's all sorts of neat stuff to learn despite what 99% of other 16 year olds might, <laughs> might say, but, um, no, it's cool. And, and since kind of having that all be reignited at that age and starting to pick up a camera, um, through the inspiration of, um, my dad, who was a hobbyist photographer and, and did that fairly seriously when I was growing up. Um, I got some hand-me-down equipment from him and then joined a camera club here in Vancouver and then sort of just got deeper and deeper into it as, as time went on. And, and yeah, here I am now I'm leading uh, photography workshops and tours here for the last, uh, I guess since about 2014 and um, have been doing it full time since then. So it's wow. kind of a, like many other people has become a very all consuming sort of lifestyle as opposed to a, a job. Um, so yeah, I'm stoked to be doing this and talking to folks like you and sharing, sharing my adventures and my images. And yeah. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. I, um, I apologize for laughing earlier. My, my mom is a hardcore birder and she likes to take my, uh, take my, my son out to bird with, with her. And nice. he's, he's 13 and, and he does not think it's that fun, you know, but I think, <laughs> he'll you know, come I laugh because I, I bet, you know, when he's probably like in his 20s, he'll be like, oh, that was actually kind of cool. Like getting to learn all totally. these birds. And, um, uh, yeah. you know, so, so I just had to laugh because I was thinking about how he would react to my mom. <laughs> totally. I feel like it's becoming kind of more mainstream though. I like, you know, I yeah. follow a few people online that were definitely not into that sort of thing pre COVID. And now they're everyone's twiddling their thumbs, sort of wondering, something they can pick up, something they can learn during all this, particularly during, you know, lockdowns and things like that. And what more could you ask for than just being able to like go out to a park and flip through a little app and find out what you're looking at. So maybe by the time he's like 16, 17, it's going to be like fully in vogue and he's going to be the cool kid in school. Right. He's like, <laughs> but, well, actually, uh, I know how everything about that. <laughs> I've been doing this since it was uh, before it was cool. So <laughs> that's awesome. Exactly. I was curious, you had it sounds like you've been doing full-time photography pretty much your entire adult life. I know you're only, you know, 28 years old, which for you might sound like you're really old. I'm 42. So um, <laughs> I'm curious, did you do anything uh, in between uh, school and full-time photography? Yeah. So I, uh, right after leaving high school, I basically, um, I got sort of at the time, what was my dream job, which was, um, doing field like biology field work. And as somebody that was really obsessed with birds and wildlife and just nature in general, it was anything where I was outdoors and getting the chance to interact with wildlife and these places that I love so much and getting paid to do that was kind of regardless of what it was. And now looking back on that, it was like, you know, the more sort of the manual labor equivalent of, of the biology world and, and, you know, doing surveys for, for things and work that was, um, at times really exciting, but, um, a lot of the more sort of menial tasks in, involved in that, but some super, super exciting stuff at the same time. And that was, to me, it was like, I had no idea this job existed, you know, as of, you know, like months previous to that, I would have had no idea. And suddenly this opportunity kind of fell in my lap to, to do that. And, uh, so I did that for a few years. And then as you might imagine being out in, you know, these wild places all the time working, I had my camera gear with me and was sort of concurrently trying to, um, pursue the photography side of things and didn't really understand how I would make that a living at that point either. And, but 
things began to sort of head in that direction naturally. And then uh, it wasn't too long after that, that I was able to kind of make my first real foray into professional nature photography um, and kind of just once that started to kind of gain some momentum, I, I just kind of tried to really run with it and, and didn't look back. And I've since then, speaking of COVID, as the, <laughs> as the wheels sort of fall off for a lot of people, a lot of freelancers and things in the past uh, few years, especially when it comes to tourism and leading tours and workshops and things like that, I've, uh, I've gone back and, and started to do a bit of science work sort of um, you know, little contracts throughout the year when I can pick up some work here and there. And that's been really fun because I do really enjoy that. And I think ultimately, I think having a little bit of both is where I'm happiest. So it's been kind of a nice, a nice um, opportunity sort of in disguise this year. So, yeah. um, but more or less for the last, yeah, seven or so, seven, eight years, it's been pretty much full-time photography. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah. I'm curious as someone, it sounds like, you know, you spend a lot of time studying, uh, birds and studying the places that you visit and understanding the natural phenomenon that are occurring in the places that you go to, um, and the play, probably the places that you love, um, as a nature lover, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on how that, uh, curiosity for the natural world and your, um, intentional study of it has influenced your photography. Yeah, I think that the word you just use there, curiosity, is a big part of it. And I think that is, I think that can just be such an important driving force in anybody's pursuit of just about anything. But speaking, you know, about landscape or wildlife photography, like what's around that next corner? Is there a different vantage point of that, of that peak? Or, you know, what's making that sound? Is that something I might be interested in photographing. Um, and I think that's just a huge part of it. And I think just allowing that to take hold of you and really trying to discover and learn things along the way. And of course that being, um, you know, an ever evolving thing, that's just, you, you can always be learning no matter how long you've done it for. I think that's always been, yeah, the real driving force behind my photography and my time spent outdoors, even when I'm not out there photographing. Um, but I think, for me, what's really been helpful in my pursuit of particularly wildlife has been coming into it from the avenue of being a birder and a, and a naturalist. I, th I think that it really, for me, I felt like it gives me a bit of a, a leg up in terms of, um, you know, being able to locate subjects, which is really, you know, mountains aren't going anywhere. Like you, you have to understand how to get the best vantage point and how to get um, the best perspective and everything, but, um, it's just a different, a different thing altogether when you're photographing dynamic, moving, migrating subjects that for me, a lot of the time, um, the hardest part and what takes 90% of the time and energy is just getting to a place where you're actually like, okay, I'm actually ready to take the camera gear out and make some pictures after all of the, you know, um, potentially weeks of trying to figure out where to go how to best approach finding a subject, how to actually get within range and so on and so forth. Um, and I think a big part of where I found success in that has been through a background in um, learning about subjects that are much deeper level than I might have otherwise if I came at it from a, a different avenue. And I think, yeah, that that's just come from a real fervor to learn and, and a real curiosity. And I really implore anybody that feels that to really let that take hold of them and don't discount um, 
you know, what might feel like you're going in a bunch of different directions at once because you're so excited about what you're seeing. Um, I think really just sort of letting that take hold and and allowing that curiosity and that drive to slowly build up that knowledge base until, you know, you can get to a point to start to make start to make better sense of things that you're seeing out there in the field. Yeah, um, what what I'm hearing you describe a little bit is like this level of excitement about these subjects that you're chasing or, or wanting to make images of. And there's a little bit of, uh, qual- there's a quality of being frenetic ar- around that I'm a little bit. And I'm wondering what are some of the ways in which you've kind of nurtured that curiosity so that it could be more intentional in terms of it being more focused and also not just, oh, I'm curious about everything and everything. Yeah. Like, how do you know which path and how do you nurture that? Well, that's the thing I think, um, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse when you're getting pulled in, in different directions. And um, I think having the ability to sort of rein that in and start to kind of focus your efforts a little bit more for somebody like me is uh, I find that challenging sometimes because it's, <laughs> I'm interested in most everything that I see out there. But I think from a photography perspective, I'm much more focused on certain subjects or certain uh, ways of, of photographing things. And so I think when I'm out there and I'm actually honing in on a subject, I find it um, easier to sort of narrow my focus and kind of put the blinders on, so to speak, and and just really keep focused on one particular um, motivating force out there. Um, and I think that that's a big part of it. Like as much as you do want to really try to follow that excitement and allow it to lead you in these directions that you want to go and, and get out there and learn, because I think like anything else, you know, having a, having a pretty broad knowledge base about the things you're seeing. Like you, you probably experience this while out in the mountains. I think not only does it make your time, you know, you can be more effective in like, if you know about weather patterns and you know about um, how to pick an appropriate route up a mountain, all of those skills that come from a variety of different places can eventually kind of lead you to that culminating moment of like getting a great image, which is the goal. Um, But, you know, I think, like I was saying before, that can also, if you do spread yourself too thin, I feel like it can sometimes, um, you probably maybe experience this if you, particularly when you're first getting into photography, like if you're trying to do everything at once, it can really, you can kind of come away with 10 mediocre images as opposed to that one real amazing shot that you're kind of looking for. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think. And that can be tricky, I, but. I was going to say, I still go through that sometimes if it's, you know, especially if I'm in a place I'm not familiar with, you know. Because you're, totally. you're absorbing it and you're learning the place and it's everything is so new and, and and you're excited and and it's like, oh my gosh, look at that over there. I've never seen like that before. But then, you know, it's it's really hard to it's it's like like you said, it's a blessing and a curse because your your right. focus is pulled away from from trying to make that really great image, but you're also being exposed to so many new things that are exciting you. So Exactly. It's not a bad I think thing. that's a real skill is to be able to kind of like take it all in, but also try to keep that, keep that focus and keep honed in on that one shot. Like, you know, even just sitting on a composition and trying to trust like, okay, I've, I've searched this area and I know that this is what I want. And, you know, even if the conditions don't look awesome right now, I could go try to run up that, that next hill to that other spot that I scouted. That's like a six out of 10, but then blow my chances down at the other spot potentially. Right. So I think that comes with time of just um, having that positive feedback of like, okay, 
I can just sit on this spot for a while and just hopefully trust or really just sort of hope, you know, and yeah. just kind of uh, see what happens. Yeah, exactly. And I think over time, you know, you get that positive reinforcement with it. And a bit of that feedback goes a long way to help you trust in it the next time and not be, you know, going in 10 different directions. Right. No, totally. You know, I know, I know you've talked a lot about your uh, love for bird photography and wildlife photography. Um, but I was initially um, drawn into your photography because of some Instagram stories I saw of, of you uh, mountain climbing there in British Columbia in the, what are those mountains called again? The So it's the, the coast mountains. And then I was, I think the ones you would have seen would have been in the, the Tantalus range, which is a little sort of sub range, not far yeah. from Vancouver. Beautiful. Uh, I was... <laughs> Super impressed with the the mountaineering moxie that you were demonstrating in, <laughs> in your stories, and um, you know I'm I'm also a mountaineer here in Colorado. I've, majority of my photography was done on my pursuit of climbing the highest hundred mountains here in Colorado. I was reading that on your site. That's super impressive. So you've done all hundred of the tallest. Yeah, and- but not as impressive <laughs> as the stuff I saw you doing, man. To be if that's I'm- some mileage though. <laughs> First, it's, it's it's yeah. There's there's some yeah. Some would say that I'm a little bit not not okay in the head. But that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. But sure, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a, I, I personally I think that um, for people that don't do this kind of stuff like you and I do, there's kind of a lack of appreciation or perhaps understanding of really just how hard it is to combine the mountaineering stuff with the photography and. Um, so that resonated a lot with me uh, watching those stories. But uh, I was curious, um, can you tell us about your approach to, to that combination and what, in your opinion, are the necessary ingredients to make it successful? I think, um, like you're saying, it's it's hard sometimes for people like the general public or even people that are pretty into the into the scene of landscape photography or hiking and things to understand combining those two and how difficult that can be. Um, and it's admittedly, it's not something that I've done a ton of, of like combining hard, harder routes and, um, harder ascents with camera gear strictly because it's, it's just a, an impractical or impossible sort of thing every now and then. Um, I mean, right. I say it's that and like then you see pictures of like Renan yeah. and Jimmy Chin, just like hanging off of the Lhotse face shooting pictures of somebody skiing or whatever, but that's obviously a whole another elite you know they're in the stratosphere as far as well, all that kind I of stuff that's is like concerned a whole, that's like a whole team of people though you know what i mean <laughs> totally yeah i yeah. think um the the thing that it really inhibits it is um you know the weight is a big thing weight and space and um so i got into climbing a number of years ago and like a lot of other people started you know gym climbing and pretty soon after that began sport climbing outdoors and and eventually um trad climbing just north of vancouver is squamish which if you're a climber you've probably heard of squamish and it's sort of like a our little our little ugly yosemite as it's sometimes affectionately <laughs> called because we've got a little in comparison to half dome or el cap we've got a lowly little 700 meter granite dome but it's a i mean i say this now it's a wonderful place it's also this summer with all the crazy heat waves it's been exfoliating rock and a bunch of the climbing is actually closed oh. right now um it's been yeah some crazy rock fall up there but um anyways it's this really awesome uh it's canada's top climbing spot and it's funny i i used to drive through that all the time to go mountain biking as a kid you have to pass through squamish to go up to whistler and 
I always just remembered seeing climbers up on the the walls and it just seemed like such an elite sport that it was like you can't just get into that recreationally like if you're a climber you are sort of born into that or it just seemed not not like when you go to a you know mountain bike trails and you see people puttering around on any number of bikes ranging from 300 bucks to 10 grand now right, it seems it sort of spans a whole yeah totally it just seems like i don't know how they get up there i don't know how I don't know how they get down, which is the, the other sort of big mystery. But um, I think in recent years with with films like the Dawnwall and Free Solo coming out um, and just climbing exploding in terms of gyms and everything, um, basically being in any sizable city in North America now, I think it uh, people are learning a lot more about it. And and the general kind of like knowledge of what goes into some of it is, is increasing. But um, yeah, I, I think that what people don't understand a lot of the time is to keep it safe, especially in terrain um, like we have around here, which is a huge mix. Like you, um, you know, we don't have particularly tall mountains here around Vancouver. They top out around 3000 meters on the South coast of BC, which compared to, you know, it's funny, it would be a mountain that looks like our biggest craggiest, most glaciated summit. And it would be, you know, like the elevation of, aspen town the town site in aspen or something like that right but you probably Um, start at sea level right (laughs) that's the thing right so you start at sea level um as we did for this recent traverse and you know you're going up nearly three thousand meters of vertical to get to the top of these and our we just don't really have a a huge infrastructure of trails like you would in other places where we kind of in canada we you know, we lag behind a lot of other countries, especially places like Europe or New Zealand or the States when it comes to huts and and trail Mm -hmm. networks and things Mm -hmm. like that. There's just not that many people up here, even though it's a very outdoor recreation focused society around here. Um, It's just, we just don't have the infrastructure. So most of our access comes from logging roads and those logging roads are only once they are decommissioned, um, you typically can't drive up a lot of them and you can't even really walk up a lot of them after about four or five years passes, the alders and the shrubs just come in so thick that you're better off just going through the forest. So access is a huge issue. So when you factor in like getting to these places, the approaches are really heinous in, in a lot of places. And then you factor in the, some of the technical climbing. Um, and then you try to shove a 100 to 400 and a tripod in your bag and a wide and a, you know, filters and all this stuff and it just yeah. after a while you're, you're like and then you're like what am i doing <laughs> yeah it's like is it is it worth me falling off of a fourth class step because i've got like 12 pounds of camera gear in my bag or do i totally. just want to go out and do this adventure and be safe and like not have a bunch of extra crap with me so and i think what i'm getting to a point now is that i've done a bit of the work to sort of gain some of the skills that i need to make things safe and and kind of initiate myself with some of this bigger terrain and now I'm getting to the point where I'm like, okay, I feel more comfortable putting a bit of extra weight on my bag. And um, not to say that all of the places that I'm going require a technical climbing or anything like that. But um, I'm finding myself more and more motivated with my landscape photography, gaining unique perspectives that oftentimes necessitate um, going through more technical terrain. And uh, I'm really enjoying that and just the sort of planning that goes around that and and trying to shave weight and trying to sort of piece that puzzle together. Um, yeah. But it's I, tricky. Uh, um, for someone who likes to pursue the mountains in that way, uh, what is it about that style of photography and capturing those types of images that uh, compels you to, to, to learn more and to do more and to keep pursuing it? I think a big part of it um, is I kind of view 
I kind of view it like wildlife photography in that if I was living in a place where there were hundreds of very charismatic species of wildlife that had never been photographed well, it would be crazy for anybody that was really interested in that to not be pursuing that heavily. Like if there was some island where there was all of these endemic species that had never been photographed, everyone would be flocking there, right? And well, you had to I swim think that, through like a channel of sharks to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think it it is like that here in British Columbia in that there are hundreds of locations and and peaks that have just never been photographed. Like there might be the odd photo that, a, you know, a geologist has taken during a, a helicopter flight over some really remote area or that a logger's taken or some aerial photos from people, um, tourists and things doing tours over more remote areas but in terms of like quality um fine art landscape photography that is intentional you're going there intentionally to photograph these things in a in a serious way it's it's incredible the amount of terrain that even within you know so to speak a stone's throw of vancouver here right in the north shore mountains and and the coast mountains immediately north of vancouver um it's amazing how much terrain is there that's just there's it's difficult because you can't i mean with google earth and and some of these maps online we have the ability to pre-visualize compositions and what an area is going to look like but to be able to like see a mountain that is you know if it was anywhere else on the continent um you know in the lower 48 or anywhere in canada where it was there was a more populous area around or there was better access i mean it would be like the crown jewel of that area and you can't even find a picture of it you know and um that's so cool. Yeah, it's it's amazing to have that here. And I think that um, I I want to try to pursue a little bit of that. And I think just for posterity's sake, just, you know, to be able to show people what is out there and to have that as a bit of a, yeah, something that lives on um, some of these more remote areas. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of people as landscape photography grows in popularity that are going to be motivated by those same factors. And that will start to grow and, and there'll be more, more to show for some of these areas. Um, so that's a big part of it, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because um, I've talked about this before, but, you know, the the importance of the combination of athleticism and physical conditioning and also the fact that very few, if not anyone else, has photographed that, those scenes um, makes it like this really, really compelling challenge that uh, it's like it's throwing the gauntlet down in front of you and you're like, okay, I, I'm going to try this, you know? And it's, yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things it's, it's wrought with a lot of risk and tons of failure probably. And, you know, potentially lots and lots and lots of effort with maybe almost no pay payout whatsoever. But I'm sure you've experienced this where uh, there's a, those rare occasions where everything lines up, you're physically fit, you executed the route correctly your gear functioned correctly, the weather participated in the exact way that you needed it to, the heavens aligned, and it was like this most incredible moment that probably no one else will ever photograph in at least a decade or two, right? And mm-hmm. there's just something to be said for that potential, right? It's such a it's such a rare mm, thing that that it but it's uh it's just Absolutely. so sweet. You know what I mean? Oh, completely. Yeah. It's, I think it's when you describe it like that, it's, it makes it seem so much more sensible to go out and do some of these things, but it's like just at face value when you're like, okay, you're going to swim across, like ford this chest deep river, do this 
terrible bushwhack for like all of these things that sometimes go into reaching some of these like places. Devil's um, Club, you got that stuff. Up yeah, there, exactly, right? <laughs> totally. Um, and it's just you know to people that are unaware of what that can lead to, and like what you just described is that culminating moment of all of that stuff. Um, you know, coming together, which it whatever one Almost time never does. Yeah, but, <laughs> right. um, I think it's hard to imagine why anybody would want to pursue some of these things, but that's, you know, you could say the same thing. I'm sure about like anybody that reaches a really high level, not to say that I'm at a high level with my landscape photography, but like somebody that's at a crazy Olympic level in any sport, if you like sure. really broke down all of the things that they go through and all of the crazy, um, you know, preface to what goes into their final product of running a race or competing in something. Um, if you broke any of that down, it would sound on paper insane. Um, but then when you, you know, think about what, what the benefits are and what the, what that moment can feel like when things do come together, I think, um, it does make a lot of sense. And I think for most people, it wouldn't take many times standing on a remote summit and watching light unfold in a way that you had hoped for, to, for that to really draw them yeah. in and, and motivate them right um, yeah, and as you're, a, and you're, the whole time you're, you're sitting up there and you're going am i really seeing this this is yeah exactly yeah yeah your, your mind is just exploding right i read i read a caption on your website and i'm gonna i've forgotten the name of the peak and you might have too being that you've been up over 100 of them at this point but uh there was a photo that you had where it was sort of a sun sunburst over the horizon with a beautiful red red sunrise and you talked about getting i think you did a really long ascent at night up to a something in the high 13s and yeah that to me was like and i'm glad that you wrote it in your caption and sometimes i have a hard time writing that because i don't want to be too like over self-aggrandizing or something but it's like sometimes it is like there, sometimes there's a lot that goes into the stuff and you kind of want to share that because it is a it is such an important part of the whole thing and uh i think downplaying that into a very casual caption sometimes can sort of um Mount, mountains just, are cool uh, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> went for a hike <laughs> meanwhile you come home and you're just like destroyed and have had this really like character building crazy experience um but i think you you've walk a good line with that on in your you know publications out there and that you like are describing these things that you go through in a in a way that's accurate and depicts you know what what you go through to get these images because you know there's probably a lot of people in in different parts of the world where and I don't mean to throw European photographers under the bus because I've never been there and I don't really know what I'm talking about. You can pretty much use that as a as a little soundbite for the rest of this entire <laughs> for the entirety of this of this interview. But um, but there's places there where you can take a gondola up to like 3,800 meters and like have waffles and a cappuccino and you know take a shot of something around Mont Blanc or whatever, wherever it is, obviously, as you can see, I, I'm not, um, right, and the, <laughs> I'm not up on the, this stuff, but the resulting image is pretty nice. And yeah. And if you just had two of those side by side, like a photo of yours from a super remote peak, it'd be like, Oh, well, this Mac guy's like, he's got to find some, some cooler mountains. Cause look at this shot that this took it. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. those are two very different things, but I think painting a picture of the experience that you've had, um, you know, is important. And I think it really will draw people into your, experiences out there because yeah it's a it's a it's some amazing places you're seeing and and it's not you know there's hard those are hard won images that's for sure yeah and it's uh it's funny i was talking to my friend alex noriega about this over the weekend we did a backtracking trip together and oh sweet and and i was we were talking about you know kind of similar to what we're talking about now but it was like you know just because you put a lot of effort into the image in terms of 
getting there doesn't necessarily mean it's a good photograph. But mm-hmm. I think that for us as photographers, it has like an extra special level of meaning and connection for us personally because of all of the effort that went into getting to that place and then being at the right place at the right time. And, and you know, like climbing a mountain at three in the morning <laughs> to get a sunrise photograph is, you know, it's not as easy as it sounds. No, <laughs> for, definitely not. You know, you could, and I just don't know that a lot of people can appreciate that. But, you know, I, I know that before we were recording, we were talking a little bit about um, the Natural Landscape Photography Awards um, that we created. And, um, and I was doing a lot of self-reflection over the weekend as well about some of my motivations for that particular competition. And, and it kind of boils down to some of what we're talking about. I mean, um, some of these experiences that you've had, that I've had, you know, putting in the effort, making sure that we're physically fit, you know, going, conditioning ourselves in the off-season getting to the right place at the right time, doing the, you know, all of the things that all of the steps that it takes to be in that place at that time to see that thing, which is probably a once a month occasion at that location at, at, at best, you know, and you happen mm-hmm. to be there on that day. It's just such an incredible culmination of things to make that happen in a photograph. And then to see people take an image and then just create that out of nothing can be very um, demoralizing and frustrating if for people mm-hmm. like us who have gone through all of that effort to to get to those places. So I, that's a big part of it for me in terms of the the whole editing thing is that it's it's like oh man those those types of things that people are putting out there those are actually pretty rare events. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you know if everything is epic nothing is epic you know exactly. So, so yeah. I was just reflecting on that, and I was curious if if that resonated with you at all. No, I think those are really astute points because it's it can be you know thinking on a personal level level and a, on a level where you know ego pervades everything and it's it's everywhere all the time, right? And it's especially when it comes to a, a solo pursuit like photography, where you're hanging your hat off of your images and the things that you can present to people and in the way that you feel is best presenting them in the way that you align with your ethics and everything. And um, it seems like from what I've seen from your work, it's, it's very um, fairly understated processing. That's not too garish and it's not, you know, you're, you're not out here creating things that weren't happening out there in front of you. And um, yeah, when you, like you say, when you see what you're, you know, what you're up against, so to speak with, with people, whether they're professionals or not, or whether they're in your local area and potentially would be seen as quote, competitors to your your product or what you're showing people um yeah it can definitely i don't think anybody is um is able to completely have that you know leave leave their mind and have sort of uh you know a bit of resentment creep in about people that kind of uh you know basically create things that aren't truly there or or take it to a place that's so far outside of the scope of what they what they truly saw and that can be tough, I think, to stomach, for, especially if you're somebody that, like yourself, that is going the extra mile. Um, and, you know, like you, you might choose to go back to a, a place three or four times to try to get a better sky and not plunk one in off of some preset that, um, and that's, I, it's a tricky one because I, I think it's, um, you know, there's the argument of like photography is an individual pursuit. It's art. People can do what they want. Absolutely. And all of those things are true. But 
it's also nuanced in that it, you know, um, it depends like what, what do you feel like is morally right? Is it just doing what you want because it's your art or is it kind of, um, you know, potentially dodging questions or accusations in the comments about like, it's, there's a similar sort of thing in wildlife photography about photographing captive subjects or baited subjects and things like that. And, um, I'm sure you've talked to, to folks about this before and it's, there's a very similar sort of alignment in, in wildlife photography to what we're talking about here because in wildlife photography, the, the post-processing issue doesn't come up as much because people know what a certain species looks like and you can't really stray from that too far before it just becomes an animal that doesn't exist um, in uh, in real life. But yeah, it's a tough one because it's, you know, at the end of the day, it is just an artistic pursuit and people should be free to, to do what they want. But I have a hard time sometimes sort of um, seeing that and seeing somebody in the comments just being like, yeah, what just a, was an incredible show of light and, you know, based upon it you know we both probably have a pretty discerning eye about being able to see when something's been composited in the shot or it's a mountain that's been made to look a thousand meters taller than it is in real life through perspective blending or warping or whatever's going on um yeah that can be challenging and i think it's really changed um the way that i consume landscape photography and i think or photography in general and i think it uh it's made me a little more skeptical and, and just not as trusting of the work that I see out there, which really, I think it works in two ways. And that I, I, I can't enjoy certain photography as much as I once did when I was a bit more naive to it first getting started and just not even understanding what people could do or what was being done. You can't unsee it. Yeah, totally. Like, right. I know what's happening here and I just can't get it out of my head. <laughs> and then it carries through, right? Like even if it's somebody has a couple images in their portfolio where they've done a, you know, not as accurate a job of blending something in, or you can tell that something funky is going on um, and potentially they're not disclosing it or they're sort of making it seem otherwise. Um, and then to me, that's sort of when I look at the rest of their portfolio, sometimes I, yeah, like you say, I can't, shake that and sometimes it's like well am i really looking at you know a sky that that person experienced or is that mountain really that sharply defined and craggy or um but i think what what's also happened is it's allowed me to appreciate a lot more the photography of people who i know are going about it in a way that for me personally sits a bit better and and motivates me um and you know whose images that i admire so i think it's it's good and bad. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, no, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's. Um, I glad. I'm glad you brought up the, the how people describe the experience because for me that's mm-hmm. actually if you want to you know add rainbows and butterflies and unicorns to your image whatever <laughs> I don't care, um, but like don't try to convince me that unicorns are actually in the photograph, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's where I'm yeah. like, come on, man. We all know what you're doing. Like, don't try to pass this off. Like he, like yeah. no one wants to be left to feel like they're being lied to, and so I think that's mm-hmm. where that's where I just get wrapped around the axle. But um, yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad. What? So, what are your kind of approaches to post post processing for landscape and and wildlife? Like, what is kind of how do you know, you know, where to draw the line? Yeah, I think um, you know, and I don't want to espouse that I'm a I'm an expert when it comes to post processing or that you know, the things that I, I talk about and the things that I'm critical of are sort of like, I, I aspire to have my images look a certain way and I'm trying to get into that, you know, t- towards that direction, but I don't know all the time that it's working or that if 
people's, you know, other people's eyes are seeing what I'm seeing. Um, but I think the, the overall sort of underpinning to the whole thing has always been, I want my photo to look like a scene that somebody could walk into and experience on their own. Because when I look at landscape photography, we were talking earlier about um, florists, Van, Van Bruegel, Van Bruegel. I've never fully yeah. understood how to say that. But um, when I look at his images, he's he's probably, I think, been my my favorite nature photographer and certainly landscape photographer for, for many years. And a lot of his shots, I always look at them and I always see like, I could imagine being right where he was and it sounds cheesy, but like feeling the sunrise and feeling the wind and feeling the exposure of standing on a certain viewpoint. And, uh, and I, and I think that being tasteful and authentic about your post-processing goes a long ways to translate those sorts of feelings to your, to your viewers. Um, because I think a lot of the time when I look at people's images that go about processing in a different way, I really admire people that can create this incredible digital art and create atmosphere and light in these ways that is really fairly convincing at times that it is a, a fully natural situation. But it's also just, it's art. It's digital art. It's beautiful digital art. And I, I love it for what it is. But I think when it goes beyond a certain point, I just look at it and go, I can't ever imagine experiencing that moment in nature. Like that is not, I've never seen light that looks like that. I've never, because it comes down to being able to relate like, Oh yeah, I know what that sort of golden light looks like when it, you know, first pops up over the ridge or um, I know what that fog looks like when it starts to move through the forest. And if it doesn't give you that feeling, at least speaking for myself, I just don't really have that connection with, with the photos. If I can't kind of conceive of it as a real moment that I could, be experiencing um and yeah there's just certain there's just certain uh photos out there now where i just i feel like i'm looking at a black light poster or like a real <laughs> fantasy world sort of sort of shot and um that's cool and i think that you know people should should go about it however they want but for me personally i've always been motivated by that that authentic sort of look and that's i guess what i try to achieve with my own photos and um, thankfully for me, it means that I don't have to do as, as much, <laughs> largely speaking, I don't have to necessarily spend hours and hours on my images. Um, I still spend a fairly considerable amount of time, but I think that's just me tinkering needlessly. Um, but yeah, I try to stay pretty, um, you know, simple with it. Exposure blending when I really need to for dynamic range. Um, I just like the next person, I use a lot of, uh, luminosity masks and, and um, all those sorts of things. But I generally speaking, don't remove or add anything to my photos or uh, change anything in an overly dramatic way. Um, and I hope that that translates to the viewer to give them that same sort of feeling that I that I look for when I'm browsing through other people's work, because I think it it's one of the big motivators for me is just to, if you ever you're kind of feeling stagnant or you don't have any real motivation that day or week, um, just to go on somebody's site and feel that, that sort of... Uh, your fire getting stoked again, I guess it's, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, something I hope can translate. You know, it's interesting as you were talking, I was, um, I was thinking about kind of like external motivations in terms of why people edit the way they do or whatever. And one of the things I'm constantly being brought back to is um, me and several of my friends. A lot of times we talk about, you know, we're not necessarily care a whole lot about what the general public thinks like you know the general public either is going to like your images or not um but like we really want our contemporary 
peers who think like us to like our work. And I'm curious if you're motivated at all by, by any of that or or if you're doing it for yourself or if, or if it's a mixture of things. What is it for you? I think, yeah, I, I really align with that and that um, what's most important to me is having the respect and and uh, sort of some kind words from my contemporaries that, that really spurs me on more. Um, I think it's tough, right? As, as our reach on many of these apps and platforms starts to really, at least speaking for myself, my reach is really diminishing on a lot of platforms. And I think yeah. that that will always be the case. Something new will pop up and the people that get in early will thrive and then kind of fizzle out um, or who knows. But um, that's been, I think as a professional, a little tricky because you kind of feel like that's a, could be potentially a direct hit on your on your ability to promote your products or your experiences that you're offering um but um other than that just from the standpoint of the likes and the the amount of traffic things get um i think i'm not too fussed about that generally but i really it's nice to to see people that whose work you really admire um that engagement in people people seeing your work and i think that that spurs me on a lot when it comes to the sort of online um, interactions. And I don't feel like much of a landscape photographer a lot of the time, just because so much of my work and what I'm known for is, is, um, is wildlife based. So every now and then if I post the odd landscape and I get a like or a comment from somebody who's, who is really deeply entrenched in the landscape world, it's always like, okay, cool. I'm like, I'm, I'm in there a little bit. I've got my toe in the, in the water, in the shallow end of the, the landscape world. Um, and I'm, I'm doing something right, um, potentially. So that's always, that's always fun. I think it's easy to kind of discount the, the online sort of, um, accolades or the interaction as, you know, that's, I don't care about it. I do it all for myself, but I think that we'd all be kidding ourselves if we didn't, um, admit to that being a, you know, a nice aside to the internal motivation. Right. Well, especially if it's, someone who you know or respect right it's like oh mm -hmm. thank you for <laughs> thank you for saying so <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. you mentioned um michael bellino and alex noriega and i actually ran into those guys um down in in oregon in the backcountry i was with uh sort of at the start who is my um landscape photography mentor alex modi who yeah um, has sort of stepped back from the the landscape photography world but at at one point a number of years ago was kind of one of the up and coming, you know, certainly one of the most talented landscape photographers in the States, as far as I'm concerned, it's um, from what I saw and experienced with him in the field and uh, met those guys. And they were, and Alex was pretty new into Alex Noriega. This is, uh, is pretty, was pretty new at this time into landscape photography. And, um, and now he's, you know, he's really made an amazing career for himself and has received some, some pretty impressive awards and, and accolades and has established and, and Michael as well has established such a, you know, a foothold in, in the world of particularly Pacific Northwest nature photography and has such an incredible portfolio. And every now and then I'll get the odd little blurb from those guys. And it's like, oh, you know, it's cool to sort of, uh, yeah, to, to see where they've gone with it and to, and to have those guys connecting with, with some of the stuff that I'm putting out. Um, because a lot of it, I understand if you're not in the bird world that, you know, I'll post some little brown bird on a stick sometimes, and it might not always connect with people that are sort of outside of that, that niche. So yeah, it, it's a nice, a nice part of it for sure. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
Well, one of the things we were talking about earlier um, was kind of this idea of pre-visualization. And I know you were speaking to it more from the uh, perspective of bird photography, I believe. But mm. one of the things, in my opinion, that's interesting about pre-visualization, God, I'm going to get that word right eventually. <laughs> is that's a lot of really, syllables for guys like us. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Especially after a, a beer or two. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like it's, I feel like it's a double-edged sword because um, on one hand, pre-visualization uh, can lead to some really incredible images. But on the other hand, it can also give you tunnel view where you might miss out mm -hmm. on images that you're not necessarily looking for. Um, and I'm guessing that might be the case for you a little bit um, in the bird photography world as well. So I'm curious uh, for you, either in landscape or, or, or wildlife photography, what's your approach to pre-visualization and how do you combat that duality that I was mentioning? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's something that comes up probably for most photographers at some point in their journey in learning about all of this stuff is that you can only be at one place at a given time, you know, and, and I think it's most important in the world of landscape photography, because it's, you know, largely speaking, we have a very finite window of time, if we're shooting, you know, the best quality of light. And when I say best, let's say sunrise or sunset, and a lot of the time, we've got, obviously, a very small window, and you can't really run around. And it's not as if you can go from here and go get another shot over there. And unless you're in Iceland or something where the the light is sweet for the whole day and certain times of the year, but around here have, in the summer. Or unless you have a drone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just have three or four hovering in different spots. Um, that's where weight, we're talking about weight <laughs> savings on trips. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's tough. It's tough with landscape photography, um, particularly a lot of the time when I'm doing wildlife, I'm shooting in flat light and I'm kind of have a larger window of time. I'm not necessarily waiting for that first little sliver of light and shooting for a few minutes and packing things up. Um, so I think the two sides of it are quite different, but, um, how it can present itself, I think in the wildlife world is, um, going to an area and getting that sort of like, Oh, here's, you know, you're, you're focusing on this bird, but suddenly you hear something behind you that you're like, Oh, I'm that's, I've never photographed that. That's exciting. And as I was saying earlier, you can sometimes just spread yourself too thin and suddenly you get 15 or 20 sort of lousy shots and, and not that sort of one or two really epic shots that you're hoping for. And that's something that I think as I've become more experienced and my motivation really sort of narrows in to, okay, I'm here and I'm allotting this week to finding and photographing a lynx and anything else outside of this, unless it's some out of this world opportunity that is too hard to pass up, I'm focusing my efforts on that. And that's sort of how I... Um, also apply myself to landscape photography a lot of the time. I, I don't find myself particularly drawn to smaller scenes. I really enjoy looking at them. And, and I think there's a ton of photographers that do an amazing job of photographing those intimate, smaller scenes. Um, but for my brain, that tends to get kind of overwhelmed a lot of the time. To me, it, it just seems so infinite. Like, if I'm photographing an abstract of some lichen on this boulder in the subalpine, like what's to say that those 200 boulders over there don't have like way better versions of what I'm shooting over here. And to me that for my brain, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And I find myself almost, it's kind of how I feel about um, macro photography too, is that it's, you know, you could spend a lifetime in a, in a single 20 acre park in a, you know, outside the city somewhere 
and have a lifetime's worth of work all in there because it's just these tiny little scenes. So I'm finding with my landscape photography, I'm more attracted to bigger scenes and, you know, um, mountain photography, I guess you could say. And uh, simply, be, I think, you know, a big part of that's obviously because I love being in those places and and that's some of the, the places I'm most passionate about. But it just seems to me like a little more, um, I don't know, you can kind of, it's more tangible. Like it's it's a, an image that you can pre-visualize and focus on. And uh, I think if I was more interested in a lot of those smaller scenes and shooting a little more actively and just looking for things, I think I would, I would spread myself way too thin and just end up kind of coming home with not exactly what I was after. So thankfully, I think um, in in my sort of preference to sort of look past some of those other scenes and focus on what is most important to me, I can kind of hopefully come away with, you know, if the conditions and everything else lines up, something that I'm, I'm most um, interested in. But having said that, you know, I, I just went on this big traverse and uh, photography certainly wasn't the, wasn't the big motivating factor to get up there, but I decided to bring my gear and didn't really get a whole lot of light. And I was looking around and I was thinking, I'm so focused on photographing these big uh, glaciated peaks that there was probably something in in, in um, the sort of subpar light for those conditions that would have worked out way better and would have made a way better better photo. I could have been in, a, in an ice cave somewhere down the hill, probably getting something that was far better. But for better yeah. or worse, sometimes that tunnel vision sort of takes over. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like both both approaches have valid, you know, they're both valid. And I feel like, you know, your approach, especially when it comes to like trying to nail that particular image of that particular um, animal or bird probably does require a great deal of discipline. And I think sometimes that discipline can work against us. Like this last weekend, um, I hiked up like six miles above my campsite, traversed across this, not traverse, but it was like an easy hike, uh, of these like 12,500 foot ridge. And my goal was to just photograph sun sunrise from up there, wherever the light looked good. And what if, you know, probably six years ago, I would have been hyper-focused on probably like one composition, Mm -hmm. but I was much more open to just seeing what I could find. And um, like probably four miles away using a telephoto lens, I was able to get this very small thing with this tiny pinnacle getting hit by the first light. And, you know, that could have been taken anywhere. Um, and it you wouldn't know where I was when I took the image. But, like, being open to seeing that kind of stuff, I think you can find some really unique images. And mm-hmm. who knows, maybe I missed out on, like, one of the best landscape scenes behind me or something. But um, so I think there's a pros and cons to both approaches. And I I think sometimes it depends on like your mood or, or maybe kind mm-hmm. of what your objectives are when you set out for your, for your hike. But more and more for me, it's, I have almost no objectives other than I just want to put myself in interesting places at interesting times and then see what mm-hmm. can come of it. Um, but yeah, I can appreciate I think that's your- something that I could learn from for sure. Cause it's, <laughs> I mean, it's certainly working out for you if that's, if that's your sort of MO out in the field. Um, but it's but fairly new it's, uh, for me. It's fairly new. I wouldn't say I've been doing that for like I think I started getting into that mindset in like 2017. Um, but it's funny because it is discipline too, hey, just in a different, in the sort of opposite direction of just allowing yourself to, you know, right. look at a broader sort of scope of things and not get so fixated. Right, and yeah. I think 
you know, I think both approaches have merit, but they're both fraught with a lot of risk and reward at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I, I just thought that that's an interesting conundrum we find ourselves in, I think, as photographers. Definitely. One thing I think that ties into that too, that I think um, is important to consider is that I think oftentimes as um, landscape photographers, we we really cherry pick the light so much, so much to the point where it's, when I was first doing landscape photography, I was sort of taught and, and was, when I was looking at images, I was thinking like, as soon as the light is, you know, past that 10 minute sweet spot, it's just kind of garbage and, and, you know, it's too harsh. And, but, um, you know, photographers like TJ Thorne come to mind who shoot a lot of, and actually, um, Eric Bennett, like he shoots a lot of higher light stuff in the Alpine and That's some of those good. shots it's, Oh, really? There you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'd like to get that. Actually, it looks fantastic. I just did a big deep dive on his website there recently. And, and uh, a lot of his stuff is, you know, you could, you could critique some of it and say, like, you know, this is harsher light, or it's, it's colder light. But to me, it's like, no, that's just a beautiful moment in the mountains that immediately brings me to that moment. And, and, you know, makes me want to be there experiencing it. And does that make it any less of an image? Because it's not, golden super low angle light and i think you know it's it's a better image because it's just a different moment that that describes a totally different kind of feel um that he would have had in the mountains and i think that that's something that i found hard to sort of um found it hard to sometimes embrace that in the field because i am so kind of focused in on certain light and and making use of that immediate or last bit of light in the day and i think that's something that we could all probably learn learn from and it's certainly not a new concept like you look at a lot of somebody like guy tal's work he's got a lot of that kind of stuff too from um just more subtle midday sort of flatter light conditions and you know he's not he's certainly not just starting out in photography or that's not a new concept to him um so yeah i think yeah it's it worth funny. thinking about those things <laughs> yeah there's no such thing as bad light um because every time of the day can yield different results but you know, it's funny, I was, um, the same trip I just came back from, I was with uh, Sarah Marino as well. And nice. um, she was talking about when they teach in Death Valley, people were asking her, like, how do you get all those pastel colors and the dunes? And, and it's like, well, because when everyone else is packing up their equipment and putting away their tripods after the sun <laughs> goes down, I'm still there for like another hour. And that's when the <laughs> yeah. light gets really good because you get this really awesome atmospheric light that bounces off of the off the atmosphere back down onto the dunes and you get these nice like blues and purples and pinks and and like I think that's what a people a lot of people don't understand is like there's really interesting light all the time. You just have to be open minded to finding it, you know? Absolutely. Uh, so I, yeah, I think it's an important lesson to learn. I'm guessing in wildlife photography, though, it's a little bit less uh, nuanced than that. I'm guessing that um, you're more concerned with things like um, blown out highlights or, you know, things mm -hmm. being in shadow or like not shooting into the sun and making sure your subject is properly illuminated and things like that. So I bet it's interesting mm -hmm. to, to shift gears when you're in the field between landscape and and, and wildlife. Yeah, that's been that's been fun. Is uh, like you're saying, shifting gears and kind of going between those two, and and trying to remember, okay, what sort of mode do I need to get in here? But thankfully, I think a lot of the time for most wildlife, at least in these temperate areas, is it um, 
you know, things tend to coincide with the best, the behavior of the wildlife tends to coincide with the best light of the day, you know, best, at least in the sense of lower angle and warmer. Um, but uh, it's so dependent upon your subject, right? If you're photographing something in the deep forest, you tend to want flatter light to avoid dapples and things like that. Um, right. But if I'm out photographing shorebirds or waterfowl or things out in the open, I, I tend to try to, you know, cherry pick those sunnier days and things like that. So yeah, it's certainly a different a different way of trying to interact with the light. But I think, um, you know, something I really recommend to a lot of clients that take workshops and things is I think, you know, working on my landscape photography in the, you know, when I was first into photography, I was, you know, pretty focused on birds and wildlife, but I, I certainly did start out with landscape photography pretty shortly after getting into it. And I think that having a bit of a background in that moving forward was really helpful in just understanding light, because I think that as wildlife photographers, we can fixate so much on our subjects because they do require so much of our attention that we can really um, neglect some of those other elements. And I think that's oftentimes why the sort of artistic side of, of wildlife photography sort of comes as a second uh, sort of an afterthought because it's it can be really hard to sort of do everything at once. But I think learning to work a little slower with landscape photography and a little more intentionally and really considering the light more, I think has translated um, to my wildlife photography. So I think they're really nice um, sort of uh, pairings to one another, I guess you could say. But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of what it's all about, isn't it? Just sort of harnessing the light. And I think as a guide, it's, you said before, like you can find subjects and, and light that works at any time of day. And then sometimes I, I'm like, you know, I should really profess that more in my, in my trips. And then I'm kind of like, when do I sleep as a guide? If that's what I'm, <laughs> if that's like, it's like, guys, the Milky Way's out. Like, what are you doing? Come on. Why are you sleeping? To do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sleep you know, when you're and dead, there's like, man. I just imagine doing like a joint workshop with somebody like TJ and he's like, Hey guys, like we're going to the river and we're going to shoot the, it's like 1230 when everyone's trying to catch a nap and you know, everyone's out there shooting abstracts of the ripples and things on the water. It's like, Oh man, like if you know, you get, you get so interested in all those types of um, photography that uh, you know, you go on a road trip somewhere and it's like, at what point do you, do you put things down? And, but uh, I think that's all, you know, all part of the fun. I think that really does enhance your experience in the outdoors is just uh, being able to tune into all those different things. Cause if it's not one thing that day, it could be the other and it's not a total wash, right? You go to a place and you've got full cloud cover when you were looking for sunny conditions and it's like, okay, we'll go into the forest and look for something and shoot something that works well with flat light. So I think it, um, as much as it obviously just promotes better and more diverse photography, it can also just really enhance the, you know, the time you spend out in nature. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, certainly good food for thought. Speaking of shifting gears, I was hoping to talk a little bit about some of your early starts in, in photography. I know that uh, you won the International Youth Photographer of the Year, uh, Nature's Best Photography in 2011. And I'm curious mm -hmm. how winning that particular award helped propel you um, in your career. And then also if you could speak to some of the subsequent awards that you won after that and how they have influenced your trajectory. Yeah, so I think um, receiving that accolade pretty early on within a few years of starting photography and getting pretty, you know, at that point, I was a pretty um, passionate hobbyist photographer, um, but certainly not somebody that was looking at it much outside of just it being a fun, a fun thing that I was interested in. I think having that feedback and that, um, 
just interacting with photographers, um, you know, on that level and meeting other professional or meeting at the time, um, some of the top professionals as I was somebody just getting into it was a real, um, you know, I think it really helped kind of bolster that passion that I had for it and helped me hopefully take it to the next level of maybe making it a career or at least just, um, really diving into it head first. And, um, in winning that competition, I, my image is, was featured in the the Smithsonian at four by six feet at acrylic mount. And it was like for somebody that had never really even printed their images, uh, let alone seen them on that, that scale. I remember walking into that exhibit and it was when that contest was held in the Smithsonian and I walked in and it was my image. And then right next to it was one of the huge Easter Island heads. I don't know if you've ever been in that museum, but it was like looking, <laughs> it just seems so absurd. And, and you're, you know, there's like a huge mammoth <laughs> in this, in this amazing museum. And then there's, and there's my photograph. Know, and then there's my yeah my cutesy photo of a fox it just seemed so absurd um but for somebody you know i was i think 17 at the time it was pretty amazing and um getting to meet people at that event and just seeing just being in the company of other photographers who also had their images up there is um as much as you don't want to put too much weight into external validation or because at the end of the day it's just a few people judging it and it's subjective and all the rest of it but um that can be a really powerful thing and i think especially for a young person that was sort of unsure about what i wanted to do that was a a really big moment for me and um i went on to enter a few more contests in in um the subsequent years and um i guess when i was about 20 in my early 20s 21 or 22 i was awarded in the wildlife photographer of the year contest which was uh i kicked myself for not going to that uh ceremony i was uh, a finalist or one of the the five winners or finalists you could say in the birds category and and uh i remember you know not really wanting to spring for a, a flight from vancouver to london and going through all of that and uh and you know potentially going over there and just being in the in the you know, the nosebleeds, like looking down at all the, <laughs> the, you know, the real grand prize winners in the contest. But then I, I remember watching it live on, on uh, the internet somewhere, some sort of live feed on Twitter. And it was like, oh, here's Kate Middleton, like handing everyone their awards. It was like, I should probably be at this thing right now. But uh, I, uh, it was an amazing thing. It's such a, it's such a big deal over there. They, I mean, in the UK, wildlife photography is, is a big deal. And it's a lot more mainstream than it is here. And it's uh they they certainly pull out all the stops at those events so that was really cool to see and it's neat to see that sort of platform given to wildlife photography especially considering some of the the sort of uh you know i guess a lot of the photography there is a little more conservation oriented and there's oftentimes quite a a story behind some of the images that that you know things that need to be told and need to be heard on that sort of scale so it's been really neat to see some of these contests um gaining a little more momentum and seeing a bit more um, mainstream sort of coverage. So I've, uh, yeah, I've been featured in that a couple of times and haven't entered contests as much in the last couple of years, but it's funny, we were speaking before um, we started sort of chatting more formally here about, um, about this contest that, that you're starting. And I had no idea, and this is not a, you know, I'm not being paid to plug this right now or anything, but uh, you can give me the hundred bucks after the interview. Well, yeah, and, and, and <laughs> I yeah. think the, the submissions will have closed before this one goes out. So we're totally in okay. the clear. But it's okay, yeah, cool. It's awesome. It doesn't seem sketch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think I think it's I think it's amazing that um, you know, this the idea of this contest I think is really is really cool. And it's something that I've that I've admired for a long time about wildlife photographer of the year, especially um when looking at it 
compared to some other nature photography contests that don't put as much of an emphasis on uh, ethics and um, transparency with the post processing. And uh, I think if we don't have that, it's a slippery slope, you know, of things we've, we've already chatted about, but I'd love to hear more about this and kind of what your, the sort of mandate of this um, kind of contest is. Cause it's something that I, you know, it's, I debated, I, I guess I, it sounds like I've missed the boat this year, but um, you haven't, you have until August 31st. Oh, okay, sweet. Yeah. September and it's something 1st, that I've, okay, right on. Well, I've never really imagined my landscape imagery to be up to snuff and up to that level of, of, uh, of, you know, being able to hang out with, with, you know, those type types of images in that contest. But I was like, I just was thinking to myself, it's such a cool idea and it's, it's something that I really uh, align with. So I think I'll probably try to put a few in there and, and just see what happens. But uh, yeah, it sounds really neat. Yeah, no, thanks. It's, um, you know, the biggest, uh, I mean, we talked a lot about kind of what my personal viewpoints are on this particular topic and podcast listeners probably are sick and tired of me ranting about it, <laughs> um, which is another reason why I wanted to create the competition is because to be honest, I was getting tired of just talking about it and I wanted to like put my money where my mouth was and come up with a solution to try to push landscape and nature photography in the direction that I want to see it go in. Not to say that those other approaches are not valid, but I was, I was noticing that a lot of the types of work photography and the photographers that I greatly admire and that that style was kind of getting overshadowed by work that was, you know, heavily post-processed and really grandiose and fantastical. And, um, and that stuff is kind of just like left to the wayside because, you know, how do you, how does, how does somebody uh, who doesn't um, take steroids every day compete in the major league baseball home run contest? You know what I mean? It's like, that's a great analogy that I've never thought of. That's totally appropriate. I mean, it's like, Hey, it's like, Hey, you know, uh, Mark McGuire, you, uh, (laughs) you know, like you guys crushed it. Uh, Sammy Sosa, good job. But like (laughs) your name has an asterisk at the end of it. I'm a baseball guy. Like, (laughs) Uh, I played baseball in college, so like it's an easy analogy for me, but, and I know that, you know, I know that art and photography is not a competition. Um, but as soon as we all put our stuff out there to be consumed by the public, it kind of then does become a competition. Like we're competing Mm -hmm. for people's eyeballs. Um, we're competing for what becomes popular versus what doesn't. And more and more and more, what we've seen is that style has become popularized for right or wrong or indifferent, whatever. But um, I wanted to kind of push back against that a little bit and say, hey, this other type of stuff is pretty cool too. Like let's celebrate it as well. Um, And let's celebrate it separately because it's, they're like different playing fields here. So Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to create a space for that to exist um, outside of all of that other stuff so that um, when you, like our main goal is where we want to produce a, uh, we actually are going to, it's probably tonight it's going out. I don't know if you're on our mailing list, but it's going out today that we're just announcing that we're going to move forward with our production of our fine art coffee, book, coffee table book, which oh, cool. is going to be with the awarded the images with all the awarded images, nice. but also all the commended images and also hopefully some like essays from the judges, essays from the founders, some more meatier content than just, you know, here's the winning images of the competition. Like it's going to be a lot more than that. And so 
but we want to provide a space for that to exist. Um, so that like someone like you, you I, I really resonated with what you said earlier that like, when I look at this kind of work, I want to know that what I'm looking at is actually something that that person experienced. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because that means something to you as the viewer. I think that's important to a lot of us as people who have been doing this for a while. Like it becomes more mm-hmm. and more important that the images that we see reflect what that person saw. And for some people, they don't care. It's like, yeah, it's great art. It looks cool. I don't care. Um, and that's cool too. But for, for those of us that do like that, there really mm-hmm. wasn't a place to find that. So um, I think so probably were- for more people than you'd think in the general public too, that's more important to a lot of people than maybe we might give credit for, um, you know, if you, if you ask the average viewer on Facebook or wherever, like, or if you told them like this, is not what this photographer experienced, or this is a very different um, scene than what they experienced. I think more people would be shocked at that. I think because of the discerning eye that you develop as a photographer and somebody that consumes this stuff all the time, it's easy for us to, to identify that. But for a lot of people, not only is it difficult to identify, but they might not even understand that that is a that's a thing. You know, for people to to go about it in a different way than just presenting something that's you know authentic and and uh, all that. So I think you'll probably see, you know, a lot more people maybe than, than you figured sort of aligning with that in even the general public that just, we might otherwise think just sort of consumes things without really understanding that or without putting much um, weight into that. And uh, yeah, I really hope that that is the case because I think it's a great initiative. And oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's definitely been a, um passion project. I mean, we started meeting in January and, um, you know, we're coming up here on what, like two weeks away. It closes the entries. So I think, awesome. yeah, we're, we're getting close to the end here and we, I think we've got over 600 people have entered so far. So it's nice. It's yeah. And that's the sort of thing where in the subsequent years, I would think like gaining that traction will be take a couple of years and kind of, um, once people are promoting it and sharing you know, their uh, involvement in it. That's going to go a long ways. Yeah, it's been a really fun project. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. I didn't, I don't mean to like use this podcast to just talk about <laughs> it all the time. But <laughs> no, it's funny because I was, it was something that I had popped up on my, um, somebody must have shared it that I follow. And it's, it's something that I was meaning to just go onto the site and read about. So I'm using, <laughs> I'm using this time uh, to do that, I guess. But it's, uh, no, it's cool. yeah, coincidental. Yeah, awesome. Well, just um, wrapping things up, um, I would love to hear about uh, who, who you would recommend our listeners either learn more about or that we should try to get um, here on the podcast. Yeah, so I've got a few sort of locals that I try to plug because there's some great you know photographers in BC. Um, my best buddy that I've grown up with that I lead photo workshops with has some really amazing stories and, and amazing uh images he's been awarded a number of times in wildlife photographer of the year uh so his name is connor stefanison awesome. and uh you'll see a lot of images where this we get emails back and forth from somebody going this person's plagiarizing their work i saw that post on your website it's like no that's because he was standing like three feet <laughs> to this side um so we've got definitely some similarities in, in images but he uh he's another person that likes to get out there in the backcountry and have some some fun adventures so highly recommend checking out his stuff um Another photographer who is local, another buddy of mine whose work I really admire, that is a total, it's something that I couldn't imagine doing myself necessarily, as I've mentioned earlier, but he's really into macro and, and, you know, tiny little insects and things that 
I'm stepping all over as I'm crashing, bushwhacking <laughs> to get up to peaks that I have no idea is there. And here he is documenting their like incredible life histories. Meanwhile, I've ne- I don't even understand that they exist, let alone dig into it that deep. So it's pretty neat to see his his work. And he's a you know he's a all rounder. He, he likes to do uh, bird bird and wildlife photography too. So his name's Thomas Barbin. He's uh, based out of Victoria, BC, on Vancouver Island. His stuff is uh, is great. Um, another photographer who who really inspires me and has um, got a definitely a different style and shoots a lot more stories and assignments and things like that. But his name is Peter Mather um, from up in Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory, and just seeing you know a little window into his world up there that is uh, you know far different than here in Vancouver. He's got some wonderful subjects and places up there and shoots things in a really creative way and. Uh, super entertaining guy on on Instagram too. His stories are a riot of him going out there. He does a lot of camera trapping and setting up really elaborate oh, um, yeah. shots. Grizzly bears fishing for salmon with the Aurora above and everything. You know, he's got oh, some really wild That sounds um, terrible. Concepts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's uh it's amazing. Um yeah, he's another another favorite of mine. Um another bird photographer who I think a lot of landscape photographers would probably see um some you know definitely some landscape and more artistic influence in is matthew studebaker from uh he's based out of ohio but does uh basically strictly birds and and some wildlife but he's um wonderful wonderful photographer wonderful guy and um was certainly an inspiration of mine when i was first getting getting into it so um yeah and i'm trying to think of who else here in bc that i would have mentioned um, I had one other guy. Oh, one other fellow actually from, you mentioned being in Portland. Um, Garrett Vin is a, is a favorite nature photographer of mine from the, uh, I believe he's in the Portland area somewhere in Oregon, but, um, he's, he's great. He works for the Cornell lab of ornithology and does a lot of filmmaking and, and, um, still work for them. And he's somebody who definitely, you know, obviously you and I are, are very motivated by outdoor adventure and, really getting out there to some far flung places. And sometimes I feel like the bird photography lacks that to a certain extent, because a lot of time we're looking for places where subjects are a bit more habituated to people or more accessible Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. allow for a closer approach. And that sometimes will lead you to be around places that are not as far flung. Mm -hmm. Um, But this this Garrett fellow is out on super remote islands, you know, up in the Bering Sea and the Aleutians and, uh, all over the place. So he's, I really admire and, and look up to that sort of combination of, uh, outdoor adventure and, uh, you know, certain level of risk taking and, and certainly, uh, um, a real ability to, to rough it in some pretty hostile and, and remote places. So highly recommend his stuff as he's, uh, he's one of my favorites. So Awesome. I think that was all I had on my list. All the other landscape photographers, I'm sure you've got such a deep uh, list of folks that you've had featured already, which is awesome. I'm looking forward to getting getting into the archives here and and especially through the winter months, listening to some more of your shows. So yeah, I will warn you the uh, the earlier earlier ones were a little bit more raw. Let's just go with that word. Mm. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, a lot a lot more nice. profanity. Let's just say, yeah. Uh huh. Okay, your sponsors are are. Uh, kind of uh, putting the pumping the brakes on that these days or <laughs> oh i wish i had them but uh, yeah maybe that's why <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's awesome cool. though well awesome man this has been a really good time uh thank you so much jess and um uh look forward to seeing more of your your great images and your awesome stories from from the alpine <laughs>
Oh, I appreciate it, man. It's been great to talk with you, and thanks so much for having me. Of course. This is cool. Well, thank you to Jess for the great conversation here on the show. I highly encourage everyone to go check out the work on his website. It's really fantastic. Well, we are working on a t-shirt design for the podcast for our Patreon supporters. If you have ideas, and I know lots of you have mad talent, please send them my way. Speaking of Patreon, I just wanted to say how grateful I am for everyone's support over there. I've been trying really hard to keep this podcast ad-free, and Patreon is the way for me to keep doing it that way. For as little as $5 a month, you can support the show. Just go to patreon.com slash fstop and listen. Of course, if you can't support the show on Patreon, there's other ways you can help out. You can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That really does help a lot. You can start engaging in conversations about the podcast on your social media channel of choice. Or you can join us for our weekly Clubhouse after parties where we discuss each episode. Thank you to this incredible community for your support. I love you. All right. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.